We come now to the first Sunday of Advent. Advent is a time in the year when we stop what we're doing. It's a time when we stop all the activities of church and we remember that this is not just another Sunday. This is not just another month of Sundays, that this is the beginning of something unique. We talked about a young woman working in a restaurant, working out there just trying to survive and her completely unaware of what season it is. There are so many people in our world today that don't realize that there's an advent. They don't realize that God did something absolutely amazing, unprecedented in the history of the human race. He did something to redeem all of us because we were all at one point lost, wandering in the darkness, and not knowing what to do to correct our condition. The advent wreath you see in front of you is meant to help us mark the seasons. It's help us, to help us focus on what's about to happen in our lives. You see, each of us has come to Christ at some point or another, but today we're going to celebrate the coming of that Messiah into the world, something that generations and generations had looked for and not seen, and that first generation was blessed to see the answer that God had offered up. Now, this is traditionally called the prophecy candle because it focuses on the prophecies of the coming of the Messiah. But it has another name, a name that is more often celebrated in the modern church. It is called the candle of hope. When we light the candle of hope, we remember that prophecy has a purpose. The purpose of prophecy is not to make us excited, not to give us something to study. It's to bring light into the darkness, is to bring hope into a hopeless situation. There are many people out there today, at home, frightened, afraid of what's happening in the world, and they wonder who is going to come and save them, what vaccine will keep them alive, or who will do something to make their life better and restore us to normal. God gave us that answer 2,000 years ago. 2,000 years ago, people were wandering in darkness. They were captive to the Roman Empire. They were slaves of an evil overlord, and they wanted to be free. There are people today who learn that they have no choice in life. They are taught that they have to just fit into the mechanism of society. But God did something 2,000 years ago to interrupt that enslavement. God sent us prophecies, promises, to give us a hope in the darkness. And you know what? We need those promises now more than we ever have in our past. Amen? I love the very first candle of Advent. I love it for this reason. Okay, is anybody here a fan of the Lord of the Rings? Yes, thank you very much. I am, yes. Okay, then you will recognize many of my references today because I was thinking over the last couple days, what does it mean to bring light into dark places? What does it mean to bring light into dark places? When Frodo Baggins was carrying the last ring and he was going on his journey, he met with the woodland elves and Galadriel, the queen of the elves, gave gifts to all of the voyagers, all of those who were on this journey. And the one that she gave to Frodo Baggins was the even star, a crystal so bright, so pure, so beautiful that it, it would, as she said, shine a light in dark places. Well, you know where he got that from? 
J.R.R. Tolkien was a Christian. He was a believer. He knew that there was a light in the darkness. In fact, at the very end of the book, when Frodo's going to go home, what Frodo doesn't know is the Shire has been destroyed. It's been wiped out by the forces of Sauron. And Arwen, one of the princesses of the city, gives to him a crystal, a beautiful diamond crystal on a pendant, and she said, it will be for you a light in the darkness. And when he goes home, the shire's destroyed, his home is gone, and that crystal becomes for him a light in the darkness. So today I want to talk about that light in the darkness. I've often said this church is not an old building, it is an old lighthouse. Our purpose is to shine light into the darkness of our community. Because there are many people who don't know that today is a sacred day. There are many people who don't know that Christmas is an incredible gift from God to us. How do we know that? Let's look at what the Word of God has to say. Three things I want you to note. Our situation in life often seems hopeless. Our situation in life often seems hopeless. Now, we're going to be skipping around today, so you've got to keep that turning finger ready to go. We are in Genesis chapter 3, verse 8. Genesis 3, 8. Our situation in life often seems hopeless. So Genesis 3, 8. This is the very first prophecy of the Messiah, the very first prophecy of the Bible. They say, well, when does prophecy begin? Does it begin with uh, Isaiah? Does it begin with Jeremiah or Daniel? No. It begins in the Garden of Eden just after man and woman have sinned against God. Genesis 3.8 says this, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and they hid themselves from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, Where are you? Now God knew where he was. He was giving Adam a chance to reveal himself and to confess his sin. He was giving him a chance to show what he had done and to seek the Lord's forgiveness. He says, where are you? Then he said, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Then he said, who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? We always look at that scripture and we think of it as, as God's condemnation, as God really coming down on them harsh and hard. But here's the thing. You have to understand, at that moment in time, Adam and Eve felt that their, their expectations were over. They had sinned against God. They had done the one thing God had commanded them not to do. He gave them the entire garden to which to enjoy. He gave them the entire garden to be Lord over. But instead, they did the one thing God asked them not to do. They gave in to the sound of the serpent. He says, I heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden. Now, interestingly enough, this phrase right here, it means the sound of a storm or judgment. That's the word in Hebrew, the sound of a storm or the sound of judgment. They had heard God walking in the garden every day of their existence, but they heard God walking in friendship, in fellowship, in love. He came to them every day to love them, to enjoy their presence, to speak with them, commune with them, to just be with them. That's why they were created. They were created to be with God. And people don't understand. You were not created to have your own life, to do whatever you choose to do, to live any way you please. I survived the 60s. 
Look how good that turned out. Everybody did what was right in their own eyes, and the entire country went to pot, basically. Wow, that was a double entendre, wasn't it? Didn't even know that was coming. Okay. So basically, when you do things your own way, you mess things up. And they had always heard God coming, and they were welcoming. They were glad to hear God coming. They wanted to rush to him, to be with him, to commune with him. But this time, the sound was different. This time was the sound of judgment. Why? Was God any different? No, but their hearts were different. The way they felt about God was different. People don't come to church because they don't want to feel guilty. They don't want to feel convicted of their sin, of their negligence. They come anywhere else in the world they want to go because they will be allowed to be anything they want to be. But they won't come to church because there they meet the expectations of God Almighty. So when he says this phrase, they heard the sound of the Lord, it was the sound of judgment. Judgment on their sin because of what they had done. He says, he says Adam, where are you? And he says, I'm over here. What, what are you doing? Well, Lord, I heard you coming, and I hid because I am naked. Now, this word naked in the Hebrew has two meanings. It means physically naked. They had no clothes on. They didn't need any clothes in the garden. The garden was a perfect environment for them to live in and be in and be together as husband and wife. Perfect. But this word has another meaning. It means to be uncovered. Basically, they knew their sin because the devil was right. He says, eat this apple, you will be like God, knowing good from evil. Thing is, they ate it and they knew they were evil. They knew they had sinned. They knew what they had done. As a result, they were terrified that God would see into them, see what they had done, and see what their hearts had become. That's what they were afraid of. That's why they hid. They didn't want God to look into them and see that they had sinned against him. And that's exactly what happened here. They were both physically naked and spiritually exposed. Sometimes we are resistant to come to church because God will expose our sin. But you know, that's a good thing. If you go to the doctor and he says, uh, brother, sister, you have cancer. That's a bad thing. But when the doctor sees you have cancer, what can the doctor do? Remove the cancer. When you have sin in your life, when you have sinned against God, who can remove it but God himself? And God is always willing. You know, Paul says, you know, I, I give you these scriptures so that you won't sin against God. That's James, actually. And he says, but if you do sin, you have an advocate with the Father who will intercede for you to remove that sin. Isn't that amazing? No matter what we do, no matter what we have done, God can remove the cancer. And when God removes the cancer, it's completely gone. It's completely gone from our lives. When there's a pain in our lives, God can remove the pain. When there's regret in our lives, God can remove the regret. And that's what's important here. He says, I was, he said, who told you that you were naked? Who exposed you? Who has made your sin evident? And that's where he stops for right now. But it's going to go on. In John 8, 44, this is what he says. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desire. You see, people in the world have a wrong idea. I'm a musician, and I love music stories. Robert Johnson went to the crossroads in Clarksdale, Mississippi. He made a deal with the devil to be a great musician, and he sold him his soul. Robert Johnson was a fool because the devil already had his soul. You don't understand. You are born into this life 
sinful. And we have that sin on us. We belong to the devil, essentially, until we give ourselves to Christ. You understand that? No such thing as an innocent soul. No such thing as an innocent person. I've heard people say, oh, well, a brother so-and-so was, was the nicest man. He would help anybody. Well, that's good. He was a nice man. He must be in heaven. Well, how do you know that? Well, he was a nice person. Does being a nice person get you to heaven? I don't think so. Does being sweet, kind, generous, loving, giving, does that make any difference to God whatsoever? No, it doesn't. Only your position in Christ makes a difference. And that's what they had to learn back in the garden. They had now lost their position of innocence with God Almighty. That's why he said, your father is the devil. Because they were following man's rules, not God's rules. They were seeking man's approval, not God's approval. And that's always the sign of someone who's never met the Savior. Now, as Christians, we lapse. Let's be honest. We have our days. We have our temper tantrums. We have our moments of greed or avarice or lust or desire. And they always get in there and they mess us up. So what's the cure? How do you take care of cancer? You remove it. How do you remove it? You go to the master surgeon. The master surgeon removes it completely, makes you whole and well, and allows you to go on with your life. See, our situation in life oftentimes seems hopeless. We've talked much in this church about addiction, how people suffer from addiction, how they deal with the, the obsessions in their life. And lies like that, obsessions are lies. There are lies that you need this thing to get you through. You need this to make you acceptable. You need this for people to like you. Those are lies. Have you believed any lies lately? Has the devil told you any lies? You're not enough. You're not good enough. You're not smart enough. You're not pretty enough. You're not handsome enough. Has the devil told you those lies? Because that's all they are. They're lies meant to defeat you. The devil said, woman, you need this apple to make you wise, to make you like God. It was a lie. It was a one-third truth. Yeah, you would know good from evil, but it would forever stain you and all those generations that come after you. Our situation in life does seem hopeless sometimes. But you know what? Because our situation in life seems hopeless, our, our situation in life leaves us separated from each other. If you'll notice, the holiday season is the biggest time for fighting, the biggest time for family conflict. From Thanksgiving right through Christmas, it seems like the bickering gets worse and worse, and uh, the, the, the stress level goes up, especially within a family, especially if you've been stuck at home with COVID, and that just drives you right up the wall. So let's see what it says here. So our situation in life seems hopeless. Adam and Eve were caught in their sin. Now, the situation leaves them separated from each other. Genesis 3, 12, we're right back to where we were. The man replied, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. What did he not say? Well, I ate the fruit. It's my fault. I did it. I made that choice. He blamed it on the woman. You ever notice that 3,500 some odd years later, we're still doing that? We're still blaming our wives for everything. I mean, I'm around guys all the time. At work, I'm, I'm surrounded. The interesting thing is women do the same thing. They blame their husband for everything. See these gray hairs in my head? That's him. He did that to me. Or, or we blame the children. You see these, see these lines on my face? My child did that to me. My son or daughter is the responsibility of this one. 
Well, actually, you know, depending on how old you are, that's what got you right there is age. So he said, the woman that you gave to be with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. So the Lord God asked the woman, what is this that you've done? And the woman said, nope, nope, it was the serpent. He deceived me and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, didn't even give the serpent a chance to answer. He just went ahead and blasted him. He said, because you've done this, you will be more cursed than any livestock and more than any wild animal. You will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. See, the serpent cooperated with Satan. The serpent cooperated with the devil to deceive Eve. Interestingly, nakash is the Hebrew word for serpent. It's also the word for dragon. The nakash in the Garden of Eden did not crawl on its belly. The nakash had legs. It was more like a dragon. By the interesting way of saying this, you know the word dragon is the original word for dinosaur, right? We didn't even have the word dinosaur until like 1859. Someone gave us a different word hoping to move us away from the truth. The reason why we associate the nakash, the, the dragon or the serpent with Satan is because that was the creature that Satan used. He spoke through that creature to deceive Eve. He didn't even come as himself. He came by way of the serpent. So the serpent was cursed forever. It lost its legs. It crawled on its belly. It became cursed among the, all the things of the world. Now here's the interesting thing for me. If you look in the world today, how many nakash do you have in your life? How many people in your life are acting as agents of the devil? Oh, you know, that church stuff, I don't believe in that. I don't believe there's just one way to heaven. And I don't believe that you got to do this and do that. And you can't do this and you can't. You got an Akash in your presence. You got someone that's cooperating with the devil to spread the devil's lies. Now, God's word gives a wideness and a grace to the Christian life. Can I get an amen from somebody? There's a lot more do's than there are don'ts. And the do's are you need to love each other, take care of each other, be kind to one another. Children, obey your parents. Yeah, you can say that when most of the kids are not here. It's all right. But uh, it's the truth. There's a lot more do's. Fathers, don't antagonize your children. Love your children. Lead your children. Pray for your children. Think about it. The Christian life, the real Christian life is so much more positive than what people painted in the religious place. And I look at this and I go, that's the lingering result of the devil. There's always somebody willing to cooperate with Satan unknowingly spreading his lies. Oh, you, you can be like God, you know. You have God in you. All these ancient alien people and all these crystal worshipers and all of them folks, they're out there thinking, God is inside of you. You just got to let him go. I don't think so. I've never read that anywhere that I trust. Amen? Think about it. The Nakash came, cooperated with the devil, and he deceived Eve. Now, here's the thing. Adam was standing right there. He saw what she did. You know what Adam was thinking? This is, this is only my thoughts, not the word of God. He's sitting there going, she's going to die. God's going to give me a new wife. Oh, wait a minute, she didn't die. Wait a minute, maybe this is okay. And then she says, here, honey, have some of this. Hmm, she didn't die. Let's do this. It was over. Eve was deceived. You notice it never says Adam was deceived. Did you notice that? Adam was not deceived. 
Adam chose to sin against God. Adam had received the command directly from the Lord. Adam had been told, don't eat that stuff. Now, he communicated that to Eve. But when Eve ate the apple and didn't die, Adam doubted God. And when that happens, you get a fight going. Can you see the life of Adam and Eve every day after that? Well, it's your fault. We got kicked out of the garden. If you hadn't, we'd be sitting in the lap of luxury right now. Well, you're the one that believed me, so you're just as much to blame as I am. It's amazing, isn't it, how fights don't change over 4,000 years or so? So the blame game started in the Garden of Eden. Blaming each other and saying, it's not my fault, it's where I'm from, it's how I was raised, I had a rough upbringing, or I didn't have this, and I didn't have that. Guess what? God don't care about your excuses. If you sinned against God, just say, I sinned against God. God, I have sinned against you. I need you to forgive me. Don't forgive my parents for the way they raised me. Don't forgive this person who mistreated me. Don't, don't forgive this person over here. Forgive me, because I'm the one that chose to disobey you. I knew not to do it, and I didn't do it. I look at the world today, and I'm horrified at all of the abuse scandals on TV. We'll leave it at that. Let's just say a lot of groups of people have been accused of abusing children. And that's nothing more horrible in my mind than that. But the worst of those people, if they sought the forgiveness of God, would receive it. Can you imagine that? The worst person among all those abusers can still be forgiven. Why? Because we're just as guilty in God's eyes as they are. Our sins are different, but a sin against God is a sin against God. And Christ died on that cross, not just for the jealous, not just for the envious, not just for the backbiter or the gossip. He didn't just die for people who commit the little tiny sins. He died for everybody who would seek his forgiveness. The people on the cross next to him were not nice people. One chose to reach out for mercy. One chose not to. The one who reached out for mercy was forgiven. Amen. This day I say to you, you will be with me in paradise. All that, all that, all that guy knew is he was dying and here was someone who didn't deserve it. Someone who could save him. Think about that. That's amazing to me. If you want to know how people fall apart, how they sin, it's right here in James 1, 14 and 15. It says this, but each person is tempted when he or she is lured and enticed by their own desires. Then desire which has conceived gives birth to sin, and when sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. People don't come to Christ because they don't want Christ to take away their fun. Is there any desire in your life today that would keep you from fully submitting yourself to Jesus Christ? Whether it be a desire for wealth, a desire for power, a desire for some possession. You know, and, and I, I've watched stories about people who are in their 50s and 60s and they're going back and they're investing hundreds of thousands of dollars to get the car their father had when they were a little kid. And they'll spend hundreds of thousands of dollars to get this 1936 Packard and have it fully restored. And they're at the age where they can barely drive it. Why? It's, it's the desire to possess it. The desire to own it. The desire to have it. What causes people to cheat and be um, less than honest in their relationships? 
What is it that causes a person to look away here or a person to look away there? It's that desire to have something you think you need, but you really don't need it. Infidelity is killing the modern family and it's killing the church. Okay? That is the truth. I have watched it all week long. I've been paying attention to things that are happening within the church around the country. Infidelity is murdering the church because we are not content with what God gave us. We think that God shortchanged us. Well, God, you should have given me a wife like that or a husband like that. How come my kids aren't as good as their kids, et cetera, et cetera, so on and so forth. If God had wanted you to have it in his grace and mercy, he would have given it to you. Amen. If you don't have this man's wealth, that person's power, this person's talent, it's because God gave you something else. Adam and Eve were not content with the Garden of Eden. They wanted to be God. And that's what drove them to blame each other and to be separate. The Nakash is out there. He's in our families. He's in our friend groups. The Nakash is telling us, hey, you have to have this thing. And if your church doesn't let you, your church must be wrong. Oh, really? What happened to the serpent when he cooperated with the devil? Last thing I want you to see. Okay, our situation in life oftentimes seems hopeless. You look at the world today. Look at the number of COVID deaths. Look at the number of people who are losing their businesses, who are losing their companies, who are losing everything, losing families. It does seem hopeless to some people, but only to people who don't have a God who is the master of all things. Second, you know, because of our situation, it can cause us to turn against each other. Divorce is rampant right now. Domestic abuse is up right now. The frying pan is the weapon of 2020 when hurled at someone's head because they didn't do what they should have done. Think about it. Think about what Satan is doing. He's destroying us from within. The third thing I want you to see is this. Because all this is true, the situation we find ourselves in today requires a situa uh, an answer that only God can provide. Our situation requires a God-given answer. Amen? We need God to do something to interrupt all of this stuff that's happening around us. Genesis 3.15 so he's, he's talked to them, he's cursed the snake, and he says this, I will put hostility between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, he will strike your head, and you will strike his heel. This is the first prophecy of hope. This is the first prophecy of the Messiah. And it tells you something that the modern church doesn't believe anymore. They did a survey. 65% of people in the modern American church do not believe Mary was a virgin. How in God's name do you give up something like that? They believe the father was a Roman soldier and then Joseph steps in as an old man to help her out with her situation and, and this kid just grows up and naturally attracts people to himself. Interesting, the word of God says there was nothing about Jesus, not his looks, not his personality, that anybody should desire to be with him. It was only who he was in God that made him effective. Some of the greatest pastors, greatest preachers in history were not pretty boys. My hero, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, was about my size, but he had about 200 pounds on me. The brother was big. 
He was a big man. And there was nothing special about him except that when he stepped into that pulpit, when God blessed his mouth, out came the wisdom of God that changed the lives of a nation. That's why he was called the Prince of Preachers. He was not enthusiastic. He was not energetic. He was not powerful. He simply spoke the truth, and men's hearts melted because God was in it. Amen? You think you can't be used by God? You need to look back at some of the goobers in the history of the church that God has used. I mean, people that you would not pick to be preachers, teachers, evangelists. God can use anybody, literally anybody. That's what he says. I'll put hostility between you and the woman, between your seed, Satan, those who follow you, those who obey you, and her seed. For those of you who flunked biology, the seed is in the male, not the female. Which meant, in order for this prophecy to be fulfilled, the bearer of the Christ had to be a virgin. People like to argue about the language of the Old Testament. Oh, the Greek says this and the Greek says this. Well, the Old Testament was in Hebrew, not Greek. And the picture right here is of a woman who's never been touched. So that's a prophecy that lasted and was reiterated by Isaiah and then was brought up at the very birth of Christ. It's amazing to me that people miss that point. Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call him Emmanuel, which is God with us. Does that sound familiar to you? The Lord himself will give you a sign, a son. When Abram was told by God, take your son, your only son, up on the mountain, Mount Moriah, and sacrifice him to me as a show of your obedience. It broke Abram's heart. But he took his son up there, and he laid him out, and as he was about to strike, he said, Father, here's the wood, here's everything else. Where's the uh, sacrifice? And Abram said, God will provide the sacrifice. You ever hear Jehovah Jireh? That's a nice English translation of the Hebrew which is Yahweh Yaira. God provides. God provided a ram in place of his son. God provided his son in place of us on that cross to die for those sins, the sins of the world laid on him. Our sins, our jealousy, our anger, our frustration, our outrage at the world, our 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 desire to be more than we are, our unsatisfaction with what God's given us. All of that was laid on Christ because he promised Abram to provide a sacrifice, and he did. He promised us to provide a son in Isaiah, and he did. Isaiah 9, 6, For to us the child is born, to us a son is given, and the government, the ruling power of the world, shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. These are titles that only God can hold. Especially when he says, Mighty God. This is a title in the Hebrew that can go to no one but Yahweh alone. Only the sovereign God, the God of the covenant, only he can hold that title. So only Jesus the second person of the Trinity, only he could receive that title legitimately. Think about it. These are promises made 
hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus ever came onto the earth. They were promises made so that when he came, we would know who he was. There are hundreds and hundreds of prophecies of the Messiah. It would be statistically impossible for any random person to fulfill even 20% of them. And Jesus fulfilled 100%. Prophecy is important because every time it is fulfilled, it gives us hope. Why? Because the greatest prophecy of all is, if I leave, I will come again and take you to be with me. God will not leave us on this disease, flea-bitten earth. He will take us home. It may be after I croak. It may be before. I'm kind of praying for before. But he will take us to be with him. He will not leave us here on this earth. And that's the thing I think is important. Isaiah 9, 6. For to us the child is born, the son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulders. You know who's in charge of this world? It ain't Joe Biden. It's the Lord God Almighty. You know who's in charge of international peace? It ain't the UN, sweetheart. It's God Almighty. Nothing happens in this world that God does not set in motion. He allowed the Babylonians to take Israel. He allowed the Assyrians to take the northern kingdom. He allowed the Romans to conquer Israel and disperse them throughout the known world. And he put it in the heart of Harry S. Truman to take the UN document that said the creation of a land called Palestine. And he took a pen, he crossed it out, and he wrote Israel. And in one stroke of his presidential pen, he restored a nation that had disappeared from the face of the earth for 2,000 years. Tell me about prophecy coming true. And if every single one has been fulfilled so far, can we trust that he's going to do it again? Amen. You can bet we can trust it. Luke 10. 19, behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents. Remember what a serpent is. Not just a snake, not just a copperhead or a water moccasin, on a serpent. And scorpions and all the powers of the enemy have nothing that shall hurt you. You see, when he says this, he's not really talking about snakes. Yeah, when Paul was on the island, he picked up the wood and there was a snake in there and the snake bit him and they went, oh, well, this guy's going to die. That's a poisonous snake. Did Paul die? No. But it's not talking about those snakes. It's talking about those snakes that hide in our lives. The nakash who would distract us, who would take us away from Christ, who would take us away from his church. The nakash will never be victorious over God's people. Now, the people who don't have Christ as Savior, they are susceptible to the poison of the devil. But we who know the word of God, the prophecies of Scripture, we cannot be overcome because Christ himself gave us the victory over these forces. Amen? We're going to come through this COVID. We're going to come through this economic problems. We're going to come through everything that happens because our God is an awesome God. And what? He reigns. Can I get an amen from somebody? Here we go. So I ask you, what authority do you need in your life today? You say, I'm powerless. I'm too young. I'm too old. I don't have any authority. You do. You have the authority of God Almighty. So what do you need? Do you need authority over fear and worry? We all need that right now. Because a lot of people out there won't go to church because they're scared. They're scared to death. Do you need victory over sadness, jealousy, envy, bickering, resentment? Now, the serpents of life want to come in and shut you down. 
They want you to give up. They want you to stay home. Stop talking about Jesus. Oh, it's apparent that God doesn't love us. Look at the condition of the world. Oh, look at all the death and the misery and the sadness. The death and misery of sadness. We did that to ourselves in the Garden of Eden. We set ourselves on that destructive path. Not God. We chose the pain and the misery and the sadness that goes on in this world because we're greedy and we're selfish. So here's the thing. I always hear, you make me mad. Guess what, honey? Nobody can make you mad. Nobody. You see, they choose the actions they take. They spit at the church. They talk ill of Christ. They talk ill of Christians and believers. They choose the action. But you know what? God has given us the authority to choose the reaction. You know what my reaction is to the atheists, the agnostics, the church haters, and the alien worshipers? I pity them. I pity them because they have no hope. They have no future. They have no knowledge. They have no authority in their life. They are victims of the nakash. And they will stay that way until the great white throne of judgment when they will be thrown into hell. All we can do is keep preaching Jesus and try to save some. That candle is a light in the darkness. Take it with you in your hearts, in your lives. Show it to the world because, my friends, they need this light. They need the light of hope. Let's pray.